Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the new weekly podcast from Design Museum Everywhere. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano, founder and executive director, and I'm joined by your other host, our vice president, Liz Pollack. Hi, Liz. Hi, everyone. It's starting to feel like summer, at least here outside Boston. Uh, this week, we're going to chat about the link between design and Earth's ecological systems, particularly how design can help protect, learn from, and regenerate those systems. We have a special guest co-host, Lana Sutherland. She's the co-founder and CEO of Tea Leaves. We'll chat with Lana about her and her team's work in this space, as well as their latest documentary, Garden of Secrets. Then Lana, Liz, and I will interview Don Danby, co-founder and principal of Spherical. We're going to learn more about her work doing design strategy around sustainability, technology, and systems. Plus, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. Before we dive in, Liz and I want to directly address the pain we're all feeling in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and so, so many other black people. The systems that keep people down and hurt people are unacceptable at any level and every level. Deadly violence against black people is happening all the time and it's happened throughout history. So we must stand up for what we know is right and we must make a better world. Design Museum Everywhere stands with those working to dismantle and redesign every system to be just, compassionate, and equitable. Black Lives Matter. Yes, Black Lives Matter. We hope you'll join us in doing the work we all need to do to better understand racism, white supremacy, and equity. And not just understand it, but be vehemently anti-racist in everything we do. We'll be posting a blog post with resources and links on real actions you can take right now and in the weeks, months, and years ahead. Yeah, thanks, Liz. Just a couple quick things from the Design Museum. Uh, We have two upcoming live virtual events in June, one on the five growing pains of global innovation on June 12th, and the next virtual event in our sketch series with Michael DiTullo. He's gonna be demonstrating how he draws footwear. And by the way, we have free tickets to our sketch events available for students. So if you want to check that out, go to our website, go to the main menu and click for students. And another piece of news to celebrate the launch of the summer issue of Design Museum Magazine. We've made every single article from every past issue available on our website for free. So be sure to check out designmuseumeverywhere.org for those articles and events. And now on to this week's topic. Today, we're going to chat about design and the ecological systems that support life, including human life on our planet. And these are connected, right? There's a link between these systems since typically when we're designing something, making something, creating something, we're removing resources from the ecological systems and transforming them, uh, those resources into something else, a product, a building, an article of clothing, something. So today we're gonna explore that relationship between design and ecology and talk about design's role in protecting ecological systems like biodiversity. And we're also gonna look into what we can learn from nature in terms of the things we design. This is where the concept of biomimicry comes from. And finally, we're gonna talk about how can can design go beyond protecting ecological systems and actually design things in a way that helps regenerate and maintain these precious elements and systems of life on Earth. To talk about design, biodiversity, and biomimicry, we have a special guest co-host. Lana Sutherland is the co-founder and CEO of Tea Leaves, a luxury tea brand that crafts bespoke teas for its exclusive clients 
ranging from five-star hotels to Michelin star and celebrity chefs worldwide. Beyond making great tea, which that would be enough, right? Just making awesome tea. Tea Leaves is a leader in creating educational content and documentaries around design, inclusivity, food, and more. Their recent documentary, Garden of Secrets, was honored with a 2020 Fast Company World Changing Ideas Award. Here's a clip from Garden of Secrets. And then you can also learn water gathering ideas from cacti. So for instance, the Apuntia cactus, that's the, the one that we refer to as the prickly pear. Each of those dots, if you look at that under a magnifying glass, you'd see that it's actually a huge cluster of very fine thorns. And each of those has this very specific geometry that has evolved to exploit two different pressure phenomena. Droplets of water will form on the tips of those, and then those droplets will track all the way up, even against gravity. They will track along those spines into the body of the cactus. Lana is joining us from Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. Welcome, Lana. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sam. Really, really appreciate it. To start, I really loved watching Garden of Secrets. It was it's such a cool film. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, it was just entertaining and also like, you know, the right length and the right amount of insights. And so I was hoping you could tell our listeners about the film and just the whole premise behind it. So about, um, maybe I'll, I'll preface this a little bit by saying our company was really founded on major education principles. And as a result of that, even though we've been around for 25 years, about eight years ago, we decided to expand the way in which we educate um, people. And so we added an in-house film department. Uh, over the course of about four years, I guess, we also got exposed to some more design principles um, via Microsoft. So we were exposed to some inclusive design. And then suddenly we had this sort of epiphany. And that was, hey, what happened? You know, I mean, designers have played such a major role in so many different ways in all of our lives, you know, some of us on a conscious level, some on more a subconscious level, you know, and, you know, gardens play or are really seen as idea banks in so many ways in terms of um, applying principles such as biomimicry. So looking to nature, looking to their structures, looking to them for solutions to design problems. And it was just such, you know, seeing this as an information bank, that was disappearing rapidly, you know, maybe this is something that designers could really care about. Yeah. Can you um, tell us, because I, I love that was like one of the main things. It's like that our whole biosphere can be a place of inspiration for designers, I think is really interesting. So for listeners who might not know like what biomimicry even is. It's basically looking to um, different systems and different principles, different structures that are already existing uh, in nature. So, um, for example, uh, one of the scientists that we interviewed from the California Academy of Sciences, you know, he looked to the lotus plant, for example, and what they noticed under he noticed under closer observation was that you know water always beads off the plant, but it also is extremely clean, even though it lives in this very swampy, murky, kind of dirty, what we would see as a dirty environment. But yet it was always spotlessly clean. How is this possible? So, you know, as they studied and took the time and, and understood what was going on, they realized that when they looked closely under the electron microscope at the surface area, that it was the way the surface was built, that the water, when it beaded off it, 
it would actually carry all the dirt particles off with it. So it was like the self-cleaning system. And as an extension of that, then they apply, ended up applying a more of a, I guess, a commercial setting um, and created this paint that could be applied so that, say, for example, buildings or whatnot wouldn't end up being as dirty. So you're That's more cool. naturally cleaned. And then you don't have to use other resources, which then, you know, take a different type of toll in the environment than to, say, keep it clean, for example. Um, there's another gentleman, Professor uh, Jazz Paul Bedell. So he does both sides. So I mentioned, I guess, a commercial application. And so also he was, he's was he been looking at services with a lot of his students. And they create a lot of different types. So from antimicrobial, um, which basically kills you know bacteria on the surfaces to services that will adapt depending on what environment which is fascinating um, which would adapt depending on what environment they find themselves in um but then what he does is actually then he takes whatever his learnings that they they gain from their commercial aspects and then he actually takes them into places like third world countries and tries to share it at a broader social good. So, for example, I think they're studying trees and, again, why the water, you know, beats off. And, of course, um, uh, irrigation or water shortages in different parts of the world um, is a huge human and and plant problem, an environmental problem. And, you know, just by studying and observing, they were able to create structures based on the, on the structures of leaves or on um, branches to show how the water would drip and you could actually collect it. Um, I think another one of their surfaces was also um, created so that it would actually separate out, like say if the water is polluted, you could separate the pollutants out from like that's the healthy cool. water. And that's hmm. just by studying nature and, and looking to it for solutions that, it, I mean, nature has perfected these things over millions of times, billions of years. You know, and here we are as human beings thinking we're so smart, but yet right. all we have to do is stop and take a moment and look and think for a moment and pause and just see how marvelous an inventor just sits right in front of us. Yeah, it's had millions of years to figure out the solutions to some of these problems. I mean, you know, one example I've always read about is just like the spiral, like a seashell, right? Like that, that structure being like so strong. And then like a spider's web, like that material. Absolutely. There's just so many ideas, you know, because nature is a renewable system, right? It has this great balance as long as we don't get in the way. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so exactly. if we can study it, um, I think that's... And, and that's just getting back to the Garden of Secrets. Like, So the botanical right. gardens then become a key place, right? Because, correct me if I'm wrong... Biodiversity isn't going well <laughs> on Earth with human no. impact. Yeah. No, Maybe you could talk to us about just why biodiversity is important, period, like even outside of biomimicry. Bio, biodiversity loss. So, you know, biodiversity loss itself has actually major impact on things like climate change. So, I mean, climate change seems to be the headliner, but ultimately one of the major, major impacting factors on climate change is actually loss of biodiversity, which I think most people wouldn't um, maybe necessarily put an equal sign between the two of them. But uh, we also had the good fortune of being able to attend the world's uh, first World Biodiversity Forum that was held in Davos uh, at the end of this last February. And during um, our panel that uh, we were there with, 
the uh, WHO in conjunction with um, a joint Nobel Peace Prize winner for uh, Physicians for Human Rights um, really drew this um, compelling argument um, to show strong correlation, maybe even perhaps causation between biodiversity loss and even like human health. So for example, um, a lot of our uh, major, well, even right now we're all sitting in the middle of a, a pandemic. Whenever we have massive biodiversity loss, we also have an increase in disease. And so that there is actually this strong linkage between the two. So there's so many different layers of importance to biodiversity. If you want to navel gaze and look at our human-centric, take a human-centric approach and say, well, from a health point of view, biodiversity is extremely important. Yeah. Do you think you could just uh, kind of describe what these botanical gardens look like for our listeners? I think myself prior to being really thoroughly exposed to more of these scientific gardens, you know, I would be more used to the flowering and thinking of lots of colors in terms of, I think, a broader spectrum. Going into more of like botanical gardens, there's a lot of joy, but you definitely have to take your time and look for it. And by that mean, I think retraining your brain, um, or at least it was for me. So walking through the past to see the different shuttle, subtle shades of green, for example, or the you know yellows turning to the greens or vice versa, or the light textures of the browns and the light reflecting off the pools, you know, as you walk and you hear the the birds chirping in the trees and flying and the the um, pointed out eagle's favorite perch on one of the, the top branches of the bald tree. Um, it's really an experiential um, place to be. I mean, it, it appeals to all your different senses. It brings them alive if you're open to be a recipient of what they have to offer. So um, extremely knowledgeable people there who are very passionate, will, it will bring every plant alive for you. <laughs> um, if you personally can't find joy in them, they will um, to a greater degree than I think I would ever be able to to do. Um, but it really is a privilege to be able to walk through a garden like that with somebody and see it through their eyes. Um, there's just so much to be gained yeah. um, on such a journey. Yeah. So yeah, could you talk to us about kind of you know, protection and how is, you know, what is design's role in protecting or preserving biodiversity? Different choices uh, of materials obviously are going to have a huge impact. Um, I think, you know, concrete is one of the major contributors to, you know, impact on climate change, for example. So if you choose to use alternate materials in, in what it is that you're building, uh, that's going to have a major impact on the environment. It's going to have a major impact on climate change, on biodiversity loss. Um, and that's just one of many decisions that obviously designers take into account um, what like a system they're going to use to approach design or what lens they see it through. All of those, those things, um, you know, when we look at them, I guess under a narrower uh, field, doesn't seem like it has such broader branches, but when you look at it, the larger ecosystem, you know, it sends ripples out into the community 
um, that really do um, amplify and have these long-lasting generational effects. Um, so yeah, as a designer, I mean, you really could be saving those millions of lives that are potentially at the point of extinction, um, again, a, a, according to the 2019 report. So I'm curious uh, about tea leaves. I'm just so fascinated with your business model and how you're getting involved in these causes. And I'm wondering if you could share even one example or one thing that you learned while making Garden of Secrets that then you applied to the business, whether it's the product or just how you guys operate. Um, be interested in that. You know, we've always been a bit of a quirky, odd group, per se, and, and more collaborative in terms of approach. But with Garden of Secrets, I just think, you know, for us, it was just it was just like dropping a pebble into a pond and watching the ripples go out and to realize that, you know, there's just so many people who are passionate about what they do and care and can have such have such amazing things to say and they just need a voice. And so, um, yeah, I guess for us, it was just to be mindful that no matter how small we think our actions are, that they can have big effects. Um, and so, you know, never think that um, just because you're small or, you know, you don't have much money or you have little limited resources that you can't do a lot with a little. Yeah, well said. Thank you so much, Lana. That was great. Thank you for uh, putting up with me and listening. Oh, happy to. <laughs> I did. As we were chatting here, I remembered. So we have a, uh, a cool program called Design Together where we create sort of like micro lessons uh, to teach kids about design. And one of them is about biomimicry. So uh, listeners, be sure to check out our website and check out Design Together because that's that was one of the first ones we posted. Uh, also, check out Tea Leaves at tealeaves.com for more information about this amazing tea company. And if you go to onblend.tealeaves.com, that's their online magazine where you can read articles on biomimicry and sustainability, as well as watch their documentaries, including Garden of Secrets. Lana, please stay with us. We'd love to have you join our conversation with Don Danby from Spherical. Design is Everywhere is brought to you by members like you. Every member receives Design Museum Magazine, our must-have quarterly print and digital publication about design impact. It's how we can bring the Design Museum directly to your door. You don't even have to leave the house. It'll come to you. Each issue contains stories from creative thought leaders on how they're using design to change the world. Yeah, some past stories include Turning the Inside Out, The Workplace Meets Mother Nature by Lee Stringer, and interviews with design leaders like Kat Holmes, Senior VP of Design and UX at Salesforce. Design Museum Magazine is design inspiration you can hold in your hands. Visit designmuseummagazine.org to subscribe today for just $3 per month. That's $3 per month that we bring the world of design to your doorstep. Check it out at designmuseummagazine.org today. And we're back. Now we're joined by a special guest. Don Danby is the co-founder and principal of Spherical, an integrative research and design strategy studio based in Oakland, California. At Spherical, Don investigates the role of technology in informing design decisions to regenerate ecosystems. So a great addition to our conversation here. 
Before founding Spherical, she led the sustainable design initiatives at Autodesk, and she co-authored a best-selling book, which I own and I have on my shelf, and I've always enjoyed, and it's called World Changing, A User's Guide to the 21st Century. Welcome, Dawn. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you all. I am a former industrial designer, and I know you started your career as an industrial designer. I'm always amazed at what industrial designers go on to do and how they evolve their career. So I'm hoping to start just wondering if you can give a bit about your background and how you've gone all the way around to uh, starting a studio like Spherical. Sure. Um, well, I went into industrial design for the very perverse reason that it made me angry. Um, <laughs> and I was infuriated by the way that I uh, that I saw us create artifacts in the world. I was not really interested, and I don't. I remain not terribly interested in artifacts because I don't believe in them. I don't think they actually exist. I think artifacts are temporary arrangements of atoms and that what we're designing for is processes. And we either acknowledge those processes or we don't. And so when I was studying industrial design, that was my obsession, except it was sort of early in terms of being able to do research on Google. <laughs> and, um, so I was doing my it best. It didn't exist. You know? But that was what motivated me. Um, and so I, I was constantly pursuing unusual characters and unusual paths because I was looking for the people who studied systems. How do we, how do we look at places and look at the flows moving through those places as opposed to creating these, these micro fictions of an artifact and believing that that artifact will persist. You bring up a good point that these products are, doesn't matter how long it lasts, it's still temporary in the geological, biological time even, of our world. Even in the time of this century or these last decades, right? right? So yeah, I mean, <laughs> geological time notwithstanding, <laughs> we're, we're experiencing the effects of the industrial design decisions of the last 10, 20, 40 years. And I would say actually, and again, I, I really believe this, I think you and I both did MBAs at one point as well, that mm -hmm. we, we, we often talk about these as industrial design decisions, which they are in a sense, but I think they're in fact outgrowths of the market and of being inside capital system that is entirely predicated on extraction. So those of us who are working on sustainability, a lot of the time, the very best we can do, the, the kind of the, the peak <laughs> that we can achieve <laughs> is a kind of harm reduction work. Mm -hmm. And it's important mm -hmm. harm reduction work. I don't, um, you know, I've, I've committed most of my life to that work, but that is, is very distinct and different from the work of actually healing life systems mm -hmm. on this planet, which is really why we started Spherical, was to be assistive to those processes. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd love to hear more about Spherical and like what you guys do and your process. Um, and then eventually I want to hear some projects sure. too, just to really like dial in exactly kind of the, the outcome. Yeah. Well, we do a lot of research. I, I co-founded Spherical with, uh, with Dr. David McConville. We have a map, if you go to regen.earth, of uh, projects that are all over the world that really is used in, in some ways to show what regeneration looks like, because what it looks like is not one thing. You know, you can, you can, you can step back and we can articulate principles, but the expression is, you know, uh, people in India, in villages across India who are re reversing desertification in their places. It looks like people removing dams in certain places. It looks like 
very different ways of managing cattle on landscapes in order to build up the soil, right? And so we've got you know 300 plus documentaries on a map to show all these different expressions as a way of getting people to understand that this is possible. Why I think that's important, and I, I will just say this from having worked in sustainability before, <laughs> is that having worked in sustainability, I actually didn't believe it was possible. It was, it, there was a significant shift that I had to do internally when I started seeing these kinds of projects and, and going, oh my gosh, like you could take degraded places and bring them back into life. What's happening there? You know, what's, what are the boundaries between us as, as humans and the rest of life systems? And those boundaries are, are real and not real. They're semi-permeable. <laughs> they are, right? That we, we exist because of other life systems right. existing. Exactly. And we don't exist otherwise. Yeah. Right? That we actually are ourselves, our makeup is, is different critters <laughs> of different kinds. And the planet itself is, is kept with a certain degree of, of stable climate, not just because of the amount of carbon atoms in the atmosphere, but because you have life systems that cool it. Yeah, I really like the distinction between sustainability and regeneration. I think that is so smart, so critical. It, it reminds me that, um, that so much of what we thought about in kind of what, you know, what sustainable product design or green building um, could do had we done what we knew what to do, right. how to do oh, 25 gosh. years ago, you know, uh, we might be in a different yeah, certainly. situation, certainly. but you can't right. efficiency your way mm -hmm. out of healing life systems. And, um, and so that's why it is kind of fundamentally different work. And so when I think about, about what it means as, as a designer, it means actually, I think stepping out of just dealing with the hardscape and the artifacts and the manufacturing lines and the products and the human-centered aspect of it and saying, in what ways are we in fact engaging with life systems? Because it's, if, you're not, if you're not acknowledging them, you're probably hurting them. Um, so I'd just be curious as to, you know, what, ha or what did you see when you, I guess, walk through the farm, maybe with a, through a farmer's eyes? versus the eyes of an industrial designer. What did that look like? What, what, what were the changes for you? Well, it's funny. I've, I feel like I've, I've worked on food systems at different times in my, um, in my life as a designer. Um, but I was always looking at it from the perspective of, um, you know, even, even my thesis work in industrial design school was like, how do we, uh, how do we create bio-based polymers mm. for food packaging? That's great. Right. Um, yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's so needed. You know, it's so uh, needed. And, um, Still needed. Yeah, and I was like, this is, great. this is a very nice crackpot idea, Dawn. I think you'll never have a job, but that's great. So anyway. <laughs> I, yeah, here you um, are. <laughs> well, you know, it, it would have been great if, if, if we had persisted and somebody had given me millions of dollars in 1999. But in any case, the... the <laughs> Hindsight's 2020, yes. But, but, I, but I bring that up because that was, that was a perspective of... of um, that I don't fully hold anymore, but it was a perspective I held then around, okay, well, if we could just swap out the, um, the polymers from fossil fuels and we'll swap those out from um, corn-based polymers, then we're, it's good, we're good, you know? And so 
which is insane because then if you actually get into <laughs> right. and, and why is it insane okay it may not be obvious it's insane because of the nature of how agriculture is done uh particularly in north america with a kind of monoculture intensification kind of stuff okay the the the, the form of agriculture that we practice that is destructive on land and doesn't absorb it's toxified, it doesn't absorb water, it doesn't absorb carbon, it causes all sorts of health problems. Okay, so that's a particular form of agriculture that is not, that is not what agriculture is. But, um, but that, that kind of swapping this for that as one, as a mental model, uh, or a project I worked on many years later, which was like, okay, we'll just, we'll just rationalize the, the logistics and supply chains of local farmers and polycultures to be able to get those things to market. Also, you know, important, actually really important right now. We're yes. starting to see a lot more of that stuff come online right now, uh, particularly in the last few, you know, couple of months, uh, which is, again, like super cool to see. But those were not um, efforts that, engage, that actually looked at what was happening on the ground itself and what was happening under the ground <laughs> and, <laughs> and the flows of that. Right. Yeah. No, but just the fact that you're open to having, I mean, I love the fact that, you know, the sense of a holistic, you know, stepping into the ecosystem kind of and trying to see it through a different lens and then realizing like just the radiating, like the so many multiple layers that need to be taken into account to have mm -hmm. an appropriate and long lasting healthy solution for not only the immediate problem, but also for like the planetary challenges as well. I mean, I think that you know, it takes a certain openness, I think, um, and um, appreciation and respect for everything. I think that there's a huge opportunity for embodied awareness. You know, this is this part of why when I talk to people who are like, how, you know, let's take a look at the curriculum for industrial design and mechanical engineering and green building. And I, I actually worked a lot on that stuff and have taught students. And, um, and it constantly strikes me that what is missing from those engagements is actually a deep understanding of just basic ecology and planetary systems, period. Because whether you're swapping this material or that, or you're using some advanced modeling software to design a net zero building, that's sort of like second, third order questions. Right. The, the first question is kind of like, where are we and what are you, what, what, what is this planet? What is it doing and where, what are we doing in it? And it was very striking for me as part of this exploration that it's not just the, you know, the practices of agriculture or the practices of land management, but even just my basic understanding of, of planetary or climate science was simplistic, you know, because, because the, the, the narrative that, that I was working with, and again, I, I will, I'll be really clear, it's not untrue, it's just incomplete, that the narrative I was working with was like, okay, we have to we have to, all we do is stop fossil fuels and we're gonna do that through electrification and green building and you know, all these things. All those things, by the way, yeah. Oh, by the way, all those things, yes and a hundred times yes. Um, but it is, we, are, we are not living in like 1985 right now. You know? We're living in a, in a time when decades have gone by and we know different things. We have very different tools and we also live on a, on a very different planet that um, we actually understand differently. Trees aren't just stores of carbon, right? Trees actually transpire 
huge amounts of water through their bodies. They put particles into the atmosphere that create the rain that falls on them. They also and provide I in, shade and then create and a cooler environment beneath. It's cooler and, environment because they're transpiring water onto yeah. you, like a like air, like stacks of air conditioners. Yeah, I'm curious how you, as I agreed, designers need to learn more about this. How are you taking that like design way of thinking and the process, whether it be like empathy, prototyping, you name it, and applying it to these systems? It's funny, like I I I don't I don't think like, oh, this is my methodology, like a one two three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I um. I've been in a hybrid world of design and design strategy, which after doing it for a while, I now come to think I was just like, look at the thing and figure it out. Yeah. Like, figure out what yeah. needs to be let's, done. Let's not get too fancy. And, and so, um, and so I don't, you know, th- th- there's always an opportunities for, um, there's always, there's always opportunities for breaking out post-its and having particular types of of processes and and experiences. But ultimately, we do a lot of of research in talking with people, in visiting people, in spending time with them. And I I tend to towards uh, thinking about what's what's the strategy. And and quite frankly, this is is work that I didn't necessarily get as much as a designer. Mm. I got it much more in working in a corporate context of having to manifest programmatic changes across large groups of people and thinking about, okay, what do I want to have happen and what might happen if I'm successful or what would happen if I fail? Yeah, yeah. So constant state of learning, sounds like. Always, always, yeah, yeah. Um, Nature can provide us with so much insight and so many solution sets. Um, what, What would you say are the consequent risks that they won't be used in a positive way? for our civil society. If I'm looking to swap out a polymer, right? And so I'm like, okay, I want to, I'm gonna get my polymers from corn and I'm not gonna get them from fossil fuels. That that is, I'm looking for a particular quality of that material. And, and, there, and then I might say, well, this is amazing. Look at this, this is so much better than the, other, than the alternative. So let's do massive corn intensification and just push on biopolymers and, and go hard on compostable plastics. Imagine if we did that. And then you would go to San Francisco and you'd go to the ferry building and you'd get your lunch and everything would be made out of compostable plastic. And almost nothing would be actually compostable in any real sense. But we've now done something that is a bait and switch, which is a we've made a an alternative. We've created some kind of alternative. We created a narrative for that alternative. And we feel good about it. I mean, we feel great. And we made That's everybody right. else feel, yes, we feel great. This is yeah. great. It's all green. It's all That's the important thing. That's the important thing. And I mean, you know, if you're if if you um, have had the misfortune of having to spend time in your life doing life cycle analyses, which is actually measuring the different environmental negative I use impact as a pejorative here, the negative environmental impact of the way that we make stuff. You see that, you know, compostable (laughs) versus fossil fuel. Sometimes it doesn't, this really doesn't add up. Uh, In a lot of ways, it doesn't add up. So I think that's that's a a simplistic way of looking at at, um, how to extract from life systems uh, in a way that uh, that's extraordinarily problematic, you know. You know, I think I've I've worked on exactly one project <laughs> myself um, where I felt like, yeah, we're we're doing it. This is for real biomimicry. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you know? um, 
it's is there a solution to that i mean that's kind of what our first segment was about chatting about botanical gardens and how we have there's so much to learn are we just do we not have the are we not equipped to learn the right way yeah do we not have the skill set to or the toolbox yeah it's 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 part of why the, the the folks in biomimicry take people out into the field you know to study uh, the dynamics, because what they're studying is not things under a microscope necessarily. I mean, they might take microscopes into the field, but they're, but that's not why you go into the field. You go into the field to watch relationships. You watch evolution. You watch life. That is what life is doing. I think it's it's a that's part of why this is a um, a challenging question, and and why I always go back to saying how can we see things in their fullness in their relationship, not just in terms of this one polymer that we can find to be useful. And I, th right? I think what the beauty of saying relationship is like just in uh, human relationships, you know, if you have, it can't be one-sided, otherwise one side's gonna leave or whatever. I mean, that's right. relationship, it's a dynamic flow. It's not a static entity. And so I think that's a beautiful word to be using. Last question. Um, it's all so large, right? Our society, how we interface with living systems, it's gigantic. How do you focus? And if you could, what challenges or opportunities would you focus on that you're not already doing? Um, I think it's, it takes, it takes some, some effort and some discipline to be able to attempt to conceive of the planet. <laughs> right? <laughs> You know, we say we say these words like planetary and global all the time, but I think it actually is a, it is extraordinary discipline and, and usually out of our reach. But we try. Um, all of us are in places now more than ever. We are definitely sitting somewhere. <laughs> and, 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 you know, most of us have been there for a bit. And um, and so it, it, I, th I think that we are often challenged, or I find I, I find that there's often a, a narrative that I'm challenged by, which is the the challenge of we need to have impact at scale. We need to be doing things at a planetary scale. We need to be doing these things, and and that suggests doing things in a generic way, right? Because we're going to do this one thing, and it's going to be the same, and that is by definition that is colonization, right? Yeah. And and so the work is the work of here. And I think that that's, I actually think that's really liberating. It's, and yet it goes against the narrative that is often fed um, to us, to many people, which is that we need to be all working at scale. Maybe, maybe the best and the most powerful and in fact, the most effective work is the work that you can do in your places, in your bioregion. Uh, to engage with the local food systems of here, to engage with the community, to engage with the mutual aid networks. And it's a really interesting question as to the role of design in all of those things, right? But um, that's, I actually think it's quite liberating to, 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 to release from what feels like an imposed sort of ego story of we need to be affecting the planet as individuals, as little nodes, we are going to affect the planet at a planetary scale, which is kind of like a cancerous sort of yeah, thing to be doing. It's an interesting way to characterize. Well, we're already doing that, I think. Oh, yeah, we've already nailed that <laughs> part of it. So, yeah, maybe we should. This different approach sounds good to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Don. This has been great. Listeners, you can learn more about Don's work to help regenerate ecosystems at Spherical by visiting spherical.studio.
Now for our weekly dose of good design, where we share an example of good design that impacted us or others in a meaningful way. Liz, why don't you kick it off? All right. So for as long as I can remember, I've always loved looking at real estate and checking out the insides of homes. It's probably one of the main reasons I originally became an architect in the first place. Uh, And even though I'm definitely not in the market, I still spend quite a good amount of time uh, looking at real estate apps, you know, just, just for fun, just to check it out, just to see what's out there. Um, And I recently discovered now that people aren't able to visit homes in person that Redfin and all these other apps are using Matterport, uh, which is basically an app that recreates your home through pictures. So you end up with this really cool axonometric 3D model of the inside of your house. Uh, You can zoom in and out and turn it around, um, basically look at it, you know, from every angle. Uh, They called it a virtual tour. And uh, what really blew me away here is that I know how to use Revit and CAD and all these other 3D architectural tools, um, but they take countless hours and a ton of training to create, whereas this piece of software literally is designed for anyone who has an iPhone. Uh, So I just thought it was a pretty cool example of innovation during a time of social distancing. Yeah, that is super cool. And I hadn't even thought about people looking for homes right now. I mean, oh my goodness. I know. And again, I am not. But yet still, (laughs) I find myself spending a lot of time on these apps because it makes me feel, I guess, normal in some way. (laughs) It is fun. It's cool to see what's out there. Very cool. Okay, I will go next. As many of you know, I am a big gardener. And so this past weekend... I set up my irrigation system, which I'm feeling I'm very proud of, uh, and that's where my week- weekly dose comes from. So it's a whole brand uh, of watering supplies, if you will, called Gardena, which is a German manufacturer that I found online. Uh, but what I like most about what they make, beyond it being just very high quality and and well engineered, is they have an easy click system. So I'm going to try and describe it. So you put these adapters on the end of every hose and every device, whether it be a sprinkler or a nozzle. And then everything just clicks into place and is really easy. So you're not like turning these like wet metal, you know, threaded screws. Um, My favorite part is on the end of the hose where the water's coming out, you have this connector that when you remove your sprinkler or your nozzle, you would expect the water to just be spraying out, which happens to me all the time. Um, but this little adapter stops the water. So it's called like their water stop feature. And yeah, I just think it's a really cool design and I always appreciate high quality products, particularly like systems of products that all work well together. And even my daughter, it's like they're little like Lego connectors. And so she was playing with them the other day and I just think it's so fun. So that's mine. Yeah, well, we definitely are going to get them. Cool. All right, Lana, you are up. I'm very, very fortunate in that I get to live, um, pretty much on the ground. So First Nations, unceded territory of the First Nations out here at UBC. And as a result, that's my big daily dose of kind of Zen is to walk out towards the gardens. And there's this beautiful little, I want to say left patch, not bald patch, but actually patch of old growth trees. And it's my favorite little spot to go through. And and you know when you just when you think you've seen everything, you know, on my way back, Along the path, um, there's this just 
I think it was the way the light was sitting. There was this brilliant, um, beautiful, in full bloom, uh, rhododendron. And so at first the color caught my eye, but then, you know, when I got a little closer and I heard the buzz of the bees and these big, beautiful bumblebees are kind of like, you know, bumping around um, amongst the flowers. And I kind of stood and stopped and it made me pause, which was already in itself beautiful. But what really struck me was, you know, watching the bee. First, it was not elegant, just like my movements tend to be on the dance floor, <laughs> going into each of the flowers. And, um, but I was just really struck by the design of the flower itself. And, you know, they have the stamens that come out on the stamens, they have the pollen. So, and just the way the flowers designed for the easy access of this bee, just to kind of like come in, be very efficient, go about, you know, get its lovely nectar and its honey, and then bump around there. And like I would on the dance floor with it, you know, but it's picking <laughs> up all the pollen before going across and carrying on, you know, to the next uh, recipient um, and, you know, providing cross-pollination. I just thought, what a beautiful relationship that is that the two of them have together. And it, it just felt, you know, in this time of, um, you know, separation just makes you more fully appreciate all the different relationships that we have that sometimes maybe we take for granted, but that we actually po cross pollinate one another. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. That's really beautiful and wonderful. Thank you again to Lana Sutherland and Don Danby for joining us this week. We'll post links to some of the stuff we talked about on the episode so you can check everything out. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. And remember to check out Design Museum Magazine and our two Design Museum Live virtual events happening in June. We'd love to see you at both of those. We can continue this conversation. Like us, follow us on Twitter. We're at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching design museum everywhere. And as always, remember to subscribe to Design Is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate us. And it would be great to have you leave a review as well that really helps people find the new show. Yes, please. This episode was written and edited by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom and David Green. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollack and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everyone.